Today's Bible reading comes from John 7, verses 1 through 8. It's in your bulletin, or in your Bible, your phone. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it is that works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. This ends the reading of God's word. Thank you, Ryan for uh, leading us in prayer and reading for us. Um, just a couple as we get started here, just a couple of uh, kind of administrative type things or not related to the sermon type things to share with you. First of all, we often have um, a question and answer at the end of the message, um, but I, I just looked at my watch. Uh, we will probably not be doing that this morning, so if you have questions, you can ask me after the service. My phone's in the or my phone number's in the, in the bulletin. Uh, you can text me as well, uh, but we probably won't be doing that at the end of the message this morning. The other thing is just to make you aware, uh, so you maybe heard uh, Ryan pray about how uh, Travis, so my, our, our family is a foster family, and uh, we had a little boy living with us for 19 months. His name is Travis. He came to us when he was about 18 months old, and then he left just yesterday, um, at the age of three, he, he lived almost exactly half of his life with us, and he had kind of become part of the f furniture. Anyhow, that's, that's why I seem a little emotional, like for you guests who are like, oh man, this church plant's going to die, look at that unstable minister who can't, <laughs> can't keep his act together, uh, he needs counseling or something. Uh, maybe I do need counseling, but um, I, I, think I, I think I'm through it. Um, but that's why I was a little emotional, especially during the baptism, um, that blessing that uh, I, I laid upon uh, little Finn is a blessing that each of our, our family would, would pray over um, Travis each night when he was put to bed. And so that is something that's uh, very meaningful for us always has been, of course, and I know it's meaningful for you too, but it's carrying some special meaning in our home right now, so anyhow, like I said, I thought I was through it, but now I definitely am, because we're not going to talk about that anymore. Uh, we have been making our way through uh, a number of encounters that Jesus has had with various people in um, the gospel according to John, and we've been doing that to understand more about who he is and more about who we are because, as I, I, I like to say here to people, uh, my deepest desire for all of you, whether I know you or not, is that you would come to love Jesus Christ with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, that you would find him more beautiful, more valuable, more worthy of your affection than anything else in the universe 
And the way you come to love someone is by knowing someone. And so we are trying to know Jesus better together in these encounters. And this morning, we come to a, a very unique encounter because this is actually an encounter with Jesus' own family. Uh, we don't often think about Jesus' family, right? His, his brothers, his younger brothers, the, the children of his earthly parents. We don't think about his relationship to them all that much because it's not, in fact, described all that much in the Bible. But there certainly is a description of his relationship here in these verses that we read together. And what is kind of shocking is that in these verses uh, describing Jesus' relationship with his brothers, what we get, what we learn about is we actually learn about unbelief. Wow, how that's a downer, isn't it? If you think about it. Who knows you best? Probably your family, right? Your, your brothers and sisters, your mom and your dad, they know you better than anybody else. If you've been married for a while, okay, your spouse knows you better than, than they do. But typically, it's our family who knows us best. They've seen us the most. They understand us the best. And here, we see that Jesus' family, his brothers who know him the best, they doubt him. They don't believe in him. It says, John points it out. He says in verse 5, even his brothers, uh, not even, sorry, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, let, before we get into it, let me just say to those of you who are here this morning, who are alone in their family as a person of faith, and we have a number of those in Grace Valley, people who are the only, you're the only Christian in your family. Your parents maybe don't believe, your brothers and sisters maybe don't believe, maybe it's your kids who don't believe, and maybe your family sort of despises your faith, and, and we'll get to what I mean by that a little bit later, but uh, essentially they think it's weird, they think it's quaint, they think it's fine for you, but have, they have no interest in it, and in fact, they may even kind of disdain it a little bit, they think it's a bit of a downer, take heart, because Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He experienced the exact same thing. And maybe if you're thinking to yourself, you know, if maybe it's my fault, maybe if I was a better person, maybe if I was a better Christian, maybe if I was a bolder Christian, maybe if I was a more committed Christian, maybe if I was a more articulate Christian, maybe if I was a better witness to my family, maybe they would believe, remember this, Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived who was perfect in every way. He never did anything wrong. He always said the right thing in any given situation. He always did the right thing in any given situation, and here he is with an unbelieving family. So go to him with that. If that's a burden on your heart, and by the way, here's a test of your faith. If you're a believer, you have a burden on your heart for every unbeliever in your life. If you don't have that burden, come talk to me afterwards, because you got bigger problems. <laughs> but it's a burden on your heart. And if it's a burden on your heart, you can go to Jesus with it because he knows exactly how you feel. That's not the sermon, though. <laughs> the sermon is on the unbelief described here in John chapter 7. You can see the outline uh, in your bulletin. There's four, 
we're going to look at the unbelief of Jesus' brothers, and we're going to see four things here. The cause of the unbelief, the makeup of the unbelief, the motivation of the unbelief, and the solution to the unbelief. Uh, let's go and have a look together. In verses 3 to 5, it says, and I'll just read it very quickly once again, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the work that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Notice that John says not even his brothers believed in him. It's almost as though John is incredulous. As though John is saying, I can't believe his own brothers don't believe in him. Why would that be? Well, first of all, they probably, they had the same mom. They grew up in the same house. And remember, Mary remembered the angels, what they had told her about this son who was to be born. And I'm sure that Mary told the story to Jesus' younger siblings. But more importantly, what we hear in this text is, is that they had seen his works. They had seen his signs. They had seen him do all those incredible things that, that are recorded in the Gospels. And yet, and yet, and yet, they still reject him. Why? Why? Don't you ever wonder that? You ever think to yourself, well, you know, this is what you do in your pride, okay? This is what I think to myself. You know, if I was there and I saw him walk on water, I think I'm pretty sure I would have believed. Don't you think? Like, if I saw him touch a leper and the guy gets healed right in front of me, you know, this isn't like a you know, oh, I have some undisclosed, unseen back pain, and some faith healer touches you, and, oh, my back pain's gone. Like, we're talking, you were white with leprosy, you had parts of your nose falling off, and your ear, and stuff like that, and Jesus touches you, and you are completely restored. I think to myself, I'd probably believe if I saw that. It's with these people. Well, they misunderstand. That's the problem. They misunderstand Jesus, they misunderstand themselves. In fact, they misunderstand everything, and the more I think about it, the more I go, boy, I probably would have, wanted to, would, have done, would have done the same thing. First of all, notice how they misunderstand Jesus, okay? They tell Jesus, look, here's your marketing strategy. You want a following? You want to start a revolution? You want to get people behind your movement? You got to get down to Judea. You got to get into Jerusalem. There's a feast going on. There'll be thousands of extra people there, and you got to go public, man. Make a splash. Here you are fiddling about in Galilee, kind of in rural America, or, well, rural Palestine, I should say. You're in rural Palestine, and you're doing all these things. There's, there's no oomph here. you got to go where the movers and the shakers are. you got to go where the action is and make a big splash there. And Jesus basically says, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to die. I'm here to be to be hated. I'm here to convict the world of its sin. I'm here to call the world out on its rebellion against God and then pay for that. And they don't understand it one bit. That's what you're here to do. I thought you were here to make a big revolution. And today, things are not all that different. People want to tell you and define for Jesus what he came to do. So they read the Bible, little bits and pieces of it, or they've heard stories, or they've watched a, a movie or something, and they say, you know, Jesus was a tremendous teacher. Or Jesus was a very wise kind of thinker. He was a, a wonderful ethicist. 
Or maybe he was a guru who was, who was revealing to us that we all have divine consciousness within and he was showing us how to tap into that divine consciousness so that we too could experience the transcendence and the enlightenment that he experienced. People have preconceived notions about what Jesus came to do. They don't let Jesus tell them, this is what I'm here to do. Take it or leave it. I remember when I was in seminary, I worked about 15 jobs to help uh, pay for seminary. One of the things I did was I worked at a, at a golf course in the mornings before classes, and I would talk to the mechanic uh, when I first got there, and, and he would tell me, oh, I know what Jesus, he, was, he had grown up Catholic, and he wasn't involved in the church or anything anymore, and he goes, he goes, you know what I think Jesus came to do? I said, what? He came for the children. And I said, whose children? He said, the children of the world. And I'm like, okay. To do what for the children of the world? To show them how to love people. And he was convinced that that's what Jesus came to do. So the brothers and people today very often misunderstand who Jesus is and what he came to do because we want to impose on him our version of who, what he, who he is and what he came to do. So they're wrong about him. But they're also wrong about themselves. Look what Jesus says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Jesus is saying that all human beings, by nature, belong to this thing called the world, and everybody in the world hates him. This is incredibly strong language. Now, what does he mean by the world? In the Bible, uh, the term world gets used in different ways. It's often described, you know, used to describe the universe, the physical universe, but it's also often described, and this is how Jesus is using it in this text, to describe sort of the spirit of the age, the system of thought, the perspective, the worldview, the way that people think in the world about what you value and it informs what you think is right and what you think is wrong. It's your view of life and, and Jesus is saying that the natural human being is part of this system of thought, this, this worldview that exists without God. Or if God is acknowledged in it, he is utterly ignored or essentially ignored. So he's not the one who informs what is right and what is wrong, what you should do with your life, how you should live. He's not in charge of any of those things. Rather, we are the ones who decide these things for ourselves in a, a variety of ways. And that world, Jesus says, opposes God. In fact, he says the world hates him. And he tells his own brothers you are part of that system of thought that hates me. Now listen, in the Bible, this is the distinction that matters. In our culture, we love to make all kinds of divisions. We like to talk about conservatives and liberals. We talk about the elites and we talk about the, the grassroots. We talk about the upper class and the lower class. And, and in some places, there's a lot of talk about uh, not just classism, but also intellectualism uh, divisions or even racial divisions. And the Bible comes along and says, look, of all the divisions that really matters is, is whether you are part of the world or you are part of the kingdom of God. That's the one that really matters. 
All other divisions are ultimately meaningless in the face of that. Now, here's the question for each of us this morning. Where do you fit? Where are you at? And if you say, well, I don't know. Even actually if you say you do know, we need to keep going. We need to keep going because we can unpack and understand better where we actually fit with point number two, the makeup of unbelief. Jesus, again, in verse 7, I've touched on it already, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Jesus is basically saying that unbelief is hatred to him. Now, how can that be? What does he mean by that? I mean, these are his brothers. He's, he's saying, essentially, to his brothers, his own flesh and blood, you guys have hated me. And they're probably sitting there going, what do you mean we hated you? We're not like, in verse 1, it says that the Jews um, were seeking to kill him. We're not trying to kill him. You know, maybe we teased him a little bit because he was kind of nerdy or maybe because he was sort of always mom's favorite or whatever. Who knows? We don't know any of that. But they would, they would probably balk at the, the idea that, that, he, that they hated him. They hadn't been violent toward him. They're certainly trying not, to, not trying to kill him. What does Jesus mean by, by saying that the world hates him? All they've done, as far as we can tell, is they've been skeptical. They didn't believe in him. And kind of condescending, right? Like, hey, if you want to start this movement, if you want to get this thing going, you've got to make yourself public and get down there, there, there to Jerusalem and, and start your, your movement in the open. So they're sort of condescending. We know better than you how to, how to accomplish your mission. And they're skeptical, obviously, telling him what to do and, and wondering whether to believe him. And here's the point. Hate, friends, often masquerades as subtle forms of contempt. Maybe you've experienced this. You, you see the snicker form on someone's face when you talk about this Jesus who you say is the Son of God. It's, it's the sneer that comes up when people find out that you believe in this man who lived 2,000 years ago that he died on a cross for your sin. It's, it's kind of the eye roll. You know, if you have a teenage daughter, particularly, you might know the eye roll. It's painful. It's a, very, it's a devastating move that daughters play on their dads when their dad's trying to say something very important to them, and they go, mm-hmm, yeah, dad. It's the dismissiveness, you know? The, 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 the curl of the lip, now, why is that hatred? Why, why is that a description of hatred? Well, Becky Pippert, a, a terrific writer, her, her quote is on the front of the bulletin if you want to see it there. She says something very, very thoughtful when she says, hatred is the opposite of love and the final, final form of hatred, she says, is indifference. And what she means by that is, is, is to really hate is to say, essentially, I don't care it's to have no empathy, 
to have no feeling. Sometimes a counselor uh, will encounter a couple who comes to counseling, and, and when the couple comes in and there's a lot of, I hate that guy, I can't the w- believe the way he, he treats me and he says things and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the counselor is worried, but the counselor is also hopeful because he sees, he sees a wife that is invested in this relationship and doesn't like what she sees happening with her husband. But if a couple comes in and the husband says, yeah, we've been having problems and all that kind of stuff and I've been trying to change and working on it, and the wife says, yeah, I don't really care. I don't really care what he does anymore. It's been too long. I've had enough. I'm done. And they're ridiculously cold and calm and cool and collected. The counselor feels a chill go down their spine and they think, I don't know if there's a hope here. Ask a counselor. Because the indifference demonstrates a hatred. And in our Western culture, the hatred that people show toward God is most definitely the indifferent form. Ask your neighbor. You want to come to church? Would you like to join a Bible study? Have you thought about religion? That kind of thing. And they'll say, "Mm, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not really all that religious. I'm, I'm glad it's good for you but it's not really for me. Thanks anyway. And because we live in this morally relativistic culture currently right now, you hear things like uh, cabinet ministers looking for the opportunity to share my truth. You notice that? You know what I'm talking about when I make that reference? Um, People talk about sharing my truth, meaning this is real for me and true for me. I don't expect other people to necessarily agree with it and believe it. I have my truth. Because of that, people can say, ah, I'm not really interested in religion. I'm not really interested in your Jesus. I'm just kind of discovering things my own way. And it's happening in church, too. Very quickly, two examples. One, Barna recently came out with the results of a survey that demonstrated that 47% of millennials, that's ages between basically ages age 20 and 34, believe that it is wrong, listen to this, it is wrong for Christians to try to convince other people to believe the same things they believe. 47%. These are evangelical millennials. These are people in churches like this one. They believe it is wrong to actually try to convince other people to believe the same thing as they do. And I actually had an an illustration of this recently. One of my kids came up to me and asked me the, the question, basically, Dad, do you think it's wrong to tell other people what they should believe? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Well, like on issues, you know, euthanasia or transgender or abortion or same-sex marriage or any of these kinds of issues, do you think it's wrong for you to try to convince people, tell people that, that their view is wrong and that you, you think your view is right? And I said, well, of course I don't think that's wrong. There's truth and there's falsehood, there's right and there's wrong, and of course we need to do that. And he told me that in his class at school, the vast majority of his classmates did think it was wrong. This, was in a, this is in a Christian high school. Go back to point one. When you are wrong about Jesus and you are wrong about yourself, you will become a moral relativist. 
And here, Jesus is making the claim, I am the ultimate reality. I am the alpha and the omega. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him. Did I just ruin that? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You cannot be indifferent about a person who claims that. How is that possible? You have someone who says, I am God in human form. I hold the universe in the palm of my hand. I am the one who is before all things and after all things. I am eternal in my existence and in my nature. And I am calling you to give your life to me. How can you say, "Uh, uh, I'm just not into you? To do that is to hate. To belittle his being. That's the makeup of unbelief. Okay, well, what motivates it? Third point, what motivates the unbelief? Whether it's outright hostility to Jesus, like in places like China, where the church is being shut down all over the place and Christians, especially pastors, are being, uh, being arrested by the state, or in, in a culture like ours where it's just sort of mere indifference. What motivates the unbelief? Well, Jesus tips, he gives us a clear explanation when he says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I testify about it that its works are evil. See, the world hates Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ judges the world. He calls out evil. He makes absolute moral claims and he says the world system is opposed to God and it is therefore evil. Whether it's states or your personal desires, he judges them. See, people like to say, you know, I can't believe in Christianity because, you know, I'm an educated person, I'm a logical person, I'm a scientific person. And I need to see the evidence, and the evidence just does not make sense in light of, you know, what I understand about the way the world works. Look at his brothers! They had all that evidence, all the stuff that a modern Western person would want. I want to see Jesus rise from the dead. I want to see Jesus uh, uh, raise someone from the dead. I want to see Jesus walk on water. There were his brothers seeing all this kind of evidence, and they still didn't believe. And and you might say, well, but I am a modern person. I am not like a simpleton like they were in in the early church or in pre-modern times. But that's nonsense. Some of the world's most brilliant thinkers in the past and today are Christians. And you see, the problem is not intellectual. The problem is moral. We love evil. And we don't want to give it up. Now, Aldous Huxley, some of you have heard of Aldous Huxley. He wrote a book called Brave New World. It's a fantastic book. He's a brilliant thinker and a secularist. In a book called Ends and Means, he was very candid about this when he wrote this. And it's a long quote. I've put it on the front of the bulletin. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. 
and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was, meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Listen to that. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. What is Aldous Huxley saying? He's saying, I discovered sex. I really liked it. And I wanted to conduct my sexual life any old way I wanted. And then there was this religion thing that got in the way and put limits and constrictions around my sexual desires. And so in order to liberate myself from uh, those constrictions, I came up with a philosophy that said there's no such thing as religion and there is no God. And every human being can choose for themselves what is right and wrong so that they can express their own sexuality any old way they please. Well, that's how we, where we are today, right? Jesus testifies that our works are evil, our self-will, our demand for autonomy. Why do you think people are disgusted with the cross? Why do you think people are disgusted with the cross? Yes, it's bloody. Yes, it's violent. Yes, it is brutal. That is all true but so is your average primetime television show. It's because of the testimony of the cross. When Jesus was dying on that cross, he was telling the world, your works are evil. And the only way to deal with those evil works is through my death. It's so bad that the only way out is through the death of the Son of God. People balk at the cross because it is the ultimate testimony to the sinfulness of the human heart. And yet, last point, it's the solution too. It's the solution too. You see, Jesus said, he said, you know, the world hates me. It's not my time to go to Jerusalem. But notice he said in verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. And the reason he said that is, is because Jesus knew that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he had an appointment with death. And he was going to keep it, and he did keep it. And the incredible thing is, is that Jesus dealt with his enemies who hated him and the Jews who wanted to kill him. He dealt with them by dying for them in order to turn them into friends. His brothers didn't get that. No one could see that coming. And so they said to him, go to Jerusalem, you've got to show yourself. And they wanted him to show his glory. And Jesus ultimately did go to Jerusalem, and he ultimately did show his glory. But his glory wasn't shown on a, on a hill in Jerusalem where he shone brightly for all the world to see, and he fell down in terror and fear. No, his glory was revealed in the dark, in that garden, just before he went to the cross, where he was all by himself, there were no cameras rolling, and he was pleading with his father that his father would say, please let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, can we please get around it? His father said no, and he was still, and he was quiet, and he said, thy will be done. And he went to that cross. 
disappointment with death. So that when you look at that cross now, yes, you see that nothing but the short of the death of Jesus Christ had to pay for your sin, but you also see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved you so much that he was willing to be nailed to that tree for you. And that turned your hate into love and devotion. If you're here and you're thinking about Jesus like your brothers, I encourage you, please, think again. Just so you know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we learn that his brothers did come to believe in him. You live right now on the other side of that cross and that empty tomb. May your unbelief turn to faith. I'd love to tell you all about how the world's going to hate you if you do. But I won't. Other than to say, just so you know, the world's going to hate you if you do. But it's okay. It hated him first. And he says to you, fear not, I have overcome the world. Pray with me, please. Father, you have overcome the world through the death and resurrection of your son. Thank you for him. Thank you for all he has done. Turn our unbelief into faith. Perhaps for some of us, you'll do it for the first time this morning. And for the rest of us, you'll renew it. So that we can face a world that will hate us too, not with fear, but with boldness and with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.